This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. I've entitled today's study, Nourishing Spiritual Health, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 25. Now, we do have a spiritual part of us as human beings. We know that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are told in the Bible that man himself is a triunity. We have a body, which is our earth suit, so to speak, and we have a soul, which is the immaterial part of man, and the soul of us, the immaterial part of us, is made up of two facets. One is what we call the soul, which is our mind, emotions, and will, and the other is our spirit, and it is in the spirit that the Holy Spirit works and operates in transforming us into the image of Christ. These divisions are not apparent to us. We don't think about them, but the Bible says that's the way we are, but we are truly one being, a, a unified being. We're going to begin in verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. Now, remember the purpose of this letter was to encourage a group of second-generation Jewish believers not to go back into Judaism. The writer lives outside of the Holy Land, outside of Palestine, or what would be the present-day state of Israel, and the recipients of the letter live inside Palestine, the Roman province of Palestine in the first century AD, and they live just south of Jerusalem in the area called Judea or Judah. And so evidently, with the rise of the Jewish revolt, many of them have fled into Jerusalem itself, and they are being persecuted because they do not participate in the Jewish ritualistic worship of the Mosaic law down at the temple. And here, here he is reminding them that that system of being in covenant with God through the Mosaic Code ended at the cross. And so everything that was involved in the Mosaic Law with its sacrificial system and its dietary regulations and all of that stuff no longer has any efficacy for them. In the past, it had efficacy in that it was the way by which they expressed their faith that they believed in God and the promises that he would someday provide a redeemer for them. Well, now the redeemer has come and therefore that system is soon going to be done away with and they need to separate themselves from it and begin to associate again with fellow believers, understanding that the separation they have from Judaism does not separate them from the Messiah, the Savior. And Jesus, of course, was a Jew, and therefore they are not separated from their Jewishness because now they are completely fulfilled and God has kept his promises to them. And God has also included everyone, even those outside the Jewish race, in his wonderful grace because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So he said, don't be carried away by the strange teachings, that's these other things outside of grace, because we're not going to be strengthened by 
external ritual observance. We are only strengthened by grace through faith. Therefore, that's where we need to pay our attention. Verse 10, we have an altar which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Jesus Christ, of course, is our Messiah and our sin offering, and he is the finished work of God, and we do not dine upon him physically, but we feast upon him. We are nourished by him spiritually, and the people who were serving down at the temple, down at the tabernacle, weren't really participating in that belief system anymore. In fact, the fact that they were even down there doing the temple sacrifices showed that they were unbelievers. But we have a special spiritual source to our lives through faith in Christ. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Verse 13, so then let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but are seeking the city which is to come. Now what he's talking about here is the fact that we get as believers, and they as believers, get to participate in the true Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Now, most of the time when a person brought a sacrifice to the temple, both the worshiper and the priest were fed from those sacrifices. That was part of the priest's living. But there was one sacrifice that nobody ate from. Nobody inside of Judaism ever ate from, and that was the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. There, the blood of the animal was put on the altar, and then later inside the holy place and holy of holies, once to atone for the priest and once to atone for the people. But the bodies of those sacrificial animals for that day, of the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, were taken outside the camp and were completely burned. And what he's saying here is that Jesus' death happened outside Jerusalem. It happened outside the camp of Judaism. Jesus Christ died on the cross, literally outside the city. And because he did, then he is the fulfillment of the full atonement of God for our sins. And so they were to go outside of Judaism at that particular time. Later, as I will hopefully get to before the end of this study today, they were going to have to literally leave the city of Jerusalem because the city of Jerusalem was on the verge of judgment and would be, would be totally destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But we also need to apply this in the fact that uh, we need to move outside of any earthly system for our salvation and fulfillment in life. We do not have here on earth any lasting city at all. There's nothing that is we can build in this life that is permanent. Every city ever built by man will someday be done away with and is in the process of decay. As soon as a building is built, it starts to fall apart and has to be maintained. And sometimes there are structures that are maintained for thousands of years, but nevertheless, they still have to be maintained or they, the natural decay of wear and tear in this world will just wear them away. 
But what we're looking for is the new Jerusalem. We're looking for a city that is permanent. And we read about that in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, our heavenly home, which is eternal in the new heaven and the new earth that is yet to come. So the New Testament believer is in a superior position to the Old Testament priest in that we have a final offering for our sins, and yet we are also able to receive spiritual nourishment and life from that offering day after day. Christ is risen and is seated at the right hand of the Father and has given us the Holy Spirit to nourish us. In verses 13 through 16, he talks about some other requirements. And the other two requirements that he talks about are commitment and service. Let's look at verse 13. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. In verse 13, we have a commitment to Jesus outside of any other ism or system, which I've already touched on. And in verse 14, it says, for we do not have a lasting city here, but are seeking the city which is to come. We're not to try to find permanence or ultimate meaning in this life because our future is in the new heaven and the new earth. In verse 15, he talks about our commitment to service. Through him, that is through following Christ spiritually, let us continue to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. So the first sacrifice or commitment of services is that we are to, we like an Old Testament priest, are to offer up some sacrifices. Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices because Christ is our final sacrifice for sin when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. But we have some sacrifices we need to make. One of them is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. When you think about that, that is a pretty profound thing that God is asking us to do. In that, we live in a really, to use a, I'm trying to coin a term, but we live in a really gripey world. We live in a world that is full of constant complaint. We have also around us a constant steady bombardment of what I call dissatisfaction. We get it from news. We get it from advertisement. Your life is not as good as it could be. You need this, that, or the other to be happy and to be satisfied. Most of the news we get is negative because nobody wants to hear about the great things that are going on. We hear about the sensational and the bad things and the negative things and all of that. There's a statement in the old newspaper business, if it bleeds, it leads. And so we're bombarded with dissatisfaction all the time. And the Bible says that as believers, we need to antidote that by reminding ourselves that we can praise God for the fact that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. We are to offer up this sacrifice of praise to God and thanksgiving. We need to thank God for our spiritual blessings. We need to thank God for our physical blessings. We are even told in the Bible to thank God for our trials because they give us a chance to mature and draw near to him. We need to become a positive, thankful, praising people. That's why we sing hymns in our worship. That's why we are then encouraged in our private lives to praise God. And we also need to 
praise and be grateful to our friends and our fellow man. Come on, guys. Let's pick up the mood in this place and make this sacrifice of praise. It's the fruit of the lips, and God is really, really pleased with it. And then in verse 16, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We need to be charitable people in the full sense of the word. We need to do good, that is, any kind of good that we can do, especially to fellow believers and then to mankind in general. And then we need to participate in charity, in giving to the needy. America is noted as the most charitable nation on the planet. Great benevolences abound in this country. Most of the, of the benevolence work in this nation was started by believers. And every other institution of service was started by Christians in general in the Western world. Education, hospitals, that whole tradition that we have in our culture for public service and charitable service all grow out of this commandment that God gives to Christians to be leaders in that area. In verses 17, we have a religious obligation. We have some spiritual obligations. We are blessed by externally doing practical gifts of service. We're blessed by praising and thanking people. We are blessed when we give away our material means to help others in charity. But we also have some spiritual obligations. And without fulfilling these, unless we tend to these, we will probably not keep doing the other things that we ought to be doing. So what are these spiritual obligations? Verse 17, obey your leaders, that is the spiritual leaders in your life, your pastor, more mature Christians that disciple and, and come along and lead you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, that is submit to their authority. Listen to them, take seriously what they have to say and obey the biblical things that they teach you. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. People that are called by God to be spiritual leaders in our churches have a job, and their job is to be like shepherds over our spiritual lives. And someday they're going to give an account of that, about their faithfulness, of course, to do the duty to Jesus of serving others and teaching them out of the word of God, feeding them solid meat of the word. But they will also give a testimony as to whether or not we responded. If we have not responded positively and given our lives to spiritual growth in a covenant relationship of Bible-believing fellow Christians, then the loss will be ours, not theirs. They've done their part. Our part is to respond and to mature personally, spiritually ourselves through their leadership. A second obligation we have is to pray for others. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, declaring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So pray for other believers. Pray for our pastors. Pray for missionaries. Pray for fellow Christians that we know about. Pray for each other, because that is a spiritual obligation that we have. And, verse 19, I urge you all the more to do so, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Another thing that we are to pray for is to, in this case, the writer to these people was saying, pray for me that I'll be 
released. Either he has been charged with a crime and he'll be released from that, else he is in prison and he will be released from it because he would like to come back and personally minister among them. So he's asking them to pray for him that he might be restored to them. All around us are believers that need to be restored to full fellowship with us. And there are various problems that they may have. And so we need to lift them up so that there can be full fellowship again. And we need to help our fellow believers who are in need practically, but we also need to help them spiritually by praying for them. Then he concludes with a benediction, verses 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the very first thing he talks about here is to rejoice in the fact that we have peace with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We have an eternal covenant with God. We have an eternal relationship with God. And we can trust the Holy Spirit to equip us for every good work as we look to Jesus, as we worship Jesus, as we study the Bible, as we grow in grace. And as a result of that, we'll be a participant in the glory of God forever and ever. Verses 22 to 25. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He's saying here, this letter isn't necessarily brief in words, but we have only covered a small amount of the things that we could talk about. We could go on and on with it, but evidently the Holy Spirit indicated to the writer that this was sufficient to give us all the information we were going to need in order to profit from this particular exhortation that's written in the book of Hebrews. Verse 23, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. So Timothy, this is the Timothy we read about in the book of Acts, at this time was an older believer, had obviously been in prison, but has now been released. And the writer of this book is hoping that he and Timothy can be reunited after Timothy's released and travel to see these people and therefore be a blessing to them and for them to be a blessing to the writer and to Timothy. Verse 24, greet all your leaders and all the saints. We need to attend corporate worship and corporate Bible study regularly. And then we need to greet those. In other words, we're to, when we see them, we need to say hello. Just create an atmosphere of fellowship among those we worship with on a regular basis and our friends that we know that are believers. Those from Italy greet you. Evidently, he is either writing from Italy and the people with whom he's associated are saying, hey, give these folks a greeting when you send this letter. Or there are some people from Italy with him while he's writing this note, but they wanted these people to know that they are greeting them and greeting us. And then finally, the ultimate blessing, grace be with you all, because it is through the grace of God that we have every blessing that God gives us. And it is because of the finished work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. So did the readers of this letter heed the warning and obey? Well, the the letter doesn't say, 
but from Christian history, we have some information. There are three writers that wrote about the events that followed the writing of this book. One was a Jewish writer by the name of Josephus. He was an unbeliever as far as Jesus being the Messiah was concerned, but he was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Another was a Jewish writer of the second century by the name of Hegesippus. He wrote about these events, as did Eusebius, who was a Gentile Christian from the fourth century. In AD 66, the Jewish revolt against the Romans began. For a while, it succeeded, but then finally, Rome drove the Jewish partisans south. They began up, up in the Galilee region and drove them south, and many of them then escoused themselves in the city of Jerusalem. It was filled with thousands and thousands of people, and many of these were Jewish believers. The city was besieged for a bit, but then Gallus, who was the general at the time, got low on supplies, and so he lifted the siege and went back to Caesarea to replenish from the supply ships that Rome had sent. In that time, the Jewish believers inside Jerusalem, and there were some 20,000 in Jerusalem, and other Jewish believers, upwards of 50,000 or so, joined them while the Roman army was gone, and they left the area of Judah and crossed the Jordan River at a place where they could cross and went over to Jordan and went to dwell in a place in a town of a Greek city, a Hellenistic city called Pella. And there they stayed until Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. During the destruction of Jerusalem and the Roman war with the Jewish rebels, 1,100,000 Jews were killed, a very large portion of the then Jewish population. But not a single Jewish believer died at the hands of the Romans. We have to remember that what was happening in 70 AD was not a persecution of believers, but it was a punishment from God on the Jewish people for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed and has stayed destroyed to this very day. So we can rejoice that these people obeyed and were blessed by God. And we have a choice also to obey the admonitions in this particular letter and also receive abundant and eternal spiritual blessings from God as a result. May God richly bless you.